So one of the things we have in this week's parasha is the mitzvah of, uh, of bringing a korban todah. So we have a requirement. We have a requirement that a certain a person who goes through a time of danger, and the, the four specifics we have is someone who crosses the sea, someone who goes through the desert, someone who recovers from an illness, and someone who's released from prison. So that person is required to bring a korban todah. Now, the rabbis teach us that there are that, that a person has to know that a person in those danger in those dangerous periods, he's he's under the effect of what my brother Victor calls. <laughs> he says avon, chamato, apor, and yashrit. Those are the four the four negative forces. So he says avon, chamato, apor, yashrit. He says so those negative forces are overwhelming a person and that puts the person into the dangerous position. It says that one of the times that we, we're experiencing those dangers is at night. And therefore at night we when we pray, we start the Hudahu. That Hashem should really save us from these negative uh, negative things. So now a person who's saved from one of these four things, so again think it seems four things why those specific four things we'll try to come up with. But again, the four things are crossing the sea, crossing the desert, uh, getting better from, uh, from an illness, and getting out of prison. So that person's required to bring a korban todah. Now the korban todah had to come with, it came, you had to bring a lot of bread when you brought the korban todah, and you had to eat it by a certain hour. Very similar to korban pesach, and a lot of, there's a lot of written to compare one to the other, because Korban Pesach in many ways is a Korban Todah, is thanking Hashem for saving us from, from the slavery of Egypt. And one of the reasons he has to bring all of the bread with it and he has to have it, it has to be eaten uh, that night, is because he's required to bring, if you're going to eat that much meat, you have to, you're making a big barbecue, what are you going to do if you make a big barbecue? You're going to invite a lot of friends. So your friends are going to come to the barbecue and they're going to ask you, why did you make this barbecue? Why are you offering this sacrifice? And you're going to explain how Hashem saved me, so to say. But one of the things that's, that's crucial is when we say this bracha, we say the bracha, Hagomel lechayavim tovot. And it's interesting, a strange wording. Hagomel lechayavim tovot. So it says a person is, chayavim is related to this word chova. Chova is, uh, is required. Says that a person who's suffering from this illness, he's in a state of chova. Means the negative, he's he's actually still attached to the negative forces. The negative forces could take him away. Now he recovers. The person who recovers thinks he's done, he's finished, it's all over. But really, what what Ari is saying is that the person is still under. He's still under the force of that negative. He could still be pulled back at any time. He's not released from the negative. So what does he have to do? He has to bring the korban todah, or he has to say this, this bracha. The question is, how does this bracha help? So the key word in this bracha is the word tov. Tov is good. Now we discussed last week, the second day of creation, we were discussing the, the aspect of the creation of the angels. The second day of creation is the day that that Gehinam is created, that hell is created, that the angels are created, all the things that have to do with deen. The second day of creation, this Monday, always has to do with deen. That's why people don't like to start anything on a Monday. 
People like to start things on a Tuesday because Tuesday we have twice, tov twice. So there's no tov on Monday because Monday is associated with deen. In fact, what the Ari is saying is that the way to release the deen is through tov. What does that mean? Tov is good. So, oh, so the way to release the judgment or the power of the dark side, so to say, is through this aspect of tov. So the third day of creation in, reintroduces tov and neutralizes the effects of the deen of Monday. We have every day in our tefillot a prayer called modim. Modim is to thank. It's the, it's the only prayer really that when the chazan says the repetition, we say a second modim, a second thank out loud. The question is why? Because everyone really has to think on their own, but it's much more powerful than that. It says that the blessing of modim is what we do to thank God for our daily miracles. The question is what are daily miracles? And I think that's what we're going to try to come into. On Purim and Chanukah, within the modim, we have Al-Hanisim. We're thanking God for specific miracles that He did for us. And whenever we do, we're acknowledging God using the name Hatov, Shimcha, Uluchana El Ador, Hatov, the good. The good actually breaks the negativity. So when we say the bracha, Hagomer Lechayavim Tovot, that Hashem who, who gave me, who did all good for me, says, even though I'm still considered Chayav, even though I'm still attached, and even though I think I was cured or I was released or I was freed, even though I think that everything's okay now, I have to remember that I'm still connected. The act of giving the sacrifice, the act of making the blessing, is what releases us by using the word Tov. And that's why when the people answer, right, they, they, they answer. So a person goes up after he, after he, a person who travels all these things goes up to the Torah. After they make the brachot on the Torah, they make a, 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 a final bracha, and they say, That God who, who, uh, who, 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 who gives those who are obligated or those who maybe, maybe chayav uh, is guilty even, someone who's obligated, he does good for them. That did completely good for me. And then we answer what? So that's what we're answering again that Hashem who did good should do good for you always. It says that again, that double tov is what's breaking the negativity that's on a person. So it's not only a person saying hagomel just to say thank you. The person saying hagomel or in the old days would bring the sacrifice. It was crucial to say that because until he said that, this aspect of deen was still on the person, and the statement of hatov is what breaks the deen. It's something to keep in mind every day when we say the amidah. Because when we say the amidah every day, when we go through modim, there's an aspect of modim that can break the, the negativity. And we say hatov shimcha lehodot. Right? At the end of modim. So hatov, again, this, this hatov is, is a secret, so to say, to break the negativity that's on a person. How does a person break negativity? Through appreciation. If we want to look at a psychological way, if we appreciate life, then we, we're generally happy with life. But on the, on the Torah side, if we use Hatov, we break the negativity. 
So, so I wanted to go further into this whole idea of why in this parasha we have these, this, uh, this mitzvah to, that a person who goes through a personal miracle has to bring a sacrifice. So the, the interesting thing is we have all of the other sacrifices that a person could bring, that an individual could bring, are all brought last week in parasha Vayikra. The exception is in this week's parasha. Now this week's parasha, really, it says Sav, Savit Aharon, right? You're going to command Aaron and his children. So the question is, these mitzvot in this week's parasha are generally dedicated to who? To Kohanim. Not to the rest of us. To the Kohanim. So if they're dedicated to the Kohen, why is it, if it's dedicated to the priest, if you lose me on any Hebrew word, just say stop. Okay. Okay. So if you... So if this week, if we're dedicated to the Kohen, why in a parasha that's dedicated to the Kohen do we bring up this law of an individual when all the laws of individual sacrifices were last week? Why specifically this law to an individual to bring a korban todah, to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving? So he says that we, we also use the word nes to describe these four situations. And he said, the truth of the matter is that uh, we're supposed to say that these are miracles. These are miracles. Just like the splitting of the Red Sea is a miracle, the fact that I landed from my plane and I got to work is a miracle. The problem is we take the miracles for granted. We take many of them for granted. So do we categorize these as open miracles or closed miracles? Obviously there's closed miracles because we don't see a miracle in taking a plane and landing. We don't see a miracle in even a, a woman who gives birth. So a woman who gives birth, generally what we do, our custom in the community, for example, when she has a boy, the night before the birth we have a reading in the, in the house. So the, the mother of the child will come, usually you know, stand at the side of the, the, the wall or something, and we give her a sidur and she says the brachav gomel. She's thanking God that she was able to come through the childbirth and she's still alive. But the fact is we take it for granted. We take many things for granted. I mean, for example, today, if someone, is, you know, someone told me last week they had to go in for bypass surgery. Today, bypass surgery is normal. You know, I have one of my friends, that's what he does. He's a, he's a heart surgeon and, you know, he says he's a glorified plumber and he cuts the pipe, cuts the other pipe, puts the two pipes together and the guy's fine, even though you've taken a guy, put him on a hot-lung machine, he's technically dead for, for X amount of time, and now you're saying, oh, okay. So a guy goes through, uh, goes through this, he comes out of the hospital and takes it all for granted. He takes it all for granted, it's, it's very difficult to, to, acknowledge, to acknowledge the miracle. The first time we have someone acknowledging, thanking Hashem, in the Torah is when? So the, what's the first we have? It's, uh, it's, it's basically where the name Yehudim, Yehudim come from. What's Yehudim? Yehuda. So Yehudim are called Jews because we're descendants of Yehuda, of Judah. Judah is the fourth son of Leah. She has three children, right? She has three children, uh, Reuven, Shimon, and Levi. And after she has the fourth one, she names him Yehuda because Yehuda comes from the word Hoda'a. Hoda'a means to think. Why does she say? She says, now that I have a fourth child, I want to thank Hashem. The question is, 
And this is, where, this is the first time we have thanks in the Torah. The rabbis say, this is it. This is the first time someone openly expresses gratitude to Hashem. But everyone's puzzled by this. What do you mean this is the first time someone expresses thanks to Hashem? We have Noah. Noah gets out of the ark. He sees he survived the flood. And what does he do? He builds an altar and he thanks Hashem for surviving. So Noah is saved. Where, we, where is Yehuda the first one? So the rabbis say that until Le'ah thanks God, no one thanks God for what we call a hidden miracle, which is childbirth. Everyone takes it for granted. This is the way of nature. This is the way of life. Noah is thanking God for saving him from the flood. That's an open miracle. But the first one to thank for a closed miracle is Le'ah. So there's a story. So I was talking to the rabbi this morning. The story, a guy came to him, a young man. He got married a year ago. Exactly a year after he got married, he had a baby girl. So he wanted to know if he's required to make a party because he had a baby girl. <laughs> Not a bris, you know. <laughs> had a baby girl. Do I need to make a party? So he says, the, the story, the same question was asked to Rav Shach. And Rav Shach told the student, he said to him, listen, imagine you were married for seven years. And imagine for seven years you couldn't have a kid. And finally, after seven years, you had a kid. Would you make a party? He says, well, you should thank God that he didn't make you suffer for six years. And you finally had the baby right away. You didn't have to, you didn't have to wait. So what, 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 what we're saying is the Le'ah taught us that even a hidden miracle is a miracle. But we, we have to come to try to appreciate it. In, in these, four, these four things that we're specifically told to bring a Todah. So the first one is someone, let's just go, the person who gets sick and gets out of bed. The person was in bed for three days and he's, he gets out of bed. Who does the person thank? Thanks you. He thanks the doctor, right? He thanks, he thanks the doctor for getting me out of bed. Right? Who does he thank? So the person's thinking, who's the one who saved me? Is the doctor. The person who is in prison and suddenly the, uh, the president decides to release him after seven years in prison. Who's he going to thank? Thank you, Don, you know, we're thinking about what's his name. Thank you, Donald Trump, right? He took him out of jail. Who's he going to thank? The governor signed the paper, the president signed the paper. Whoever got him out of jail, or the lawyers who got him out of jail, or the judge who, whoever got him, he's going to go to that person and thank them. The person who was on a boat, and the boat was shaking back and forth, and they thought they were all going to drown, and they finally got to land, who are they going to thank? The captain of the ship, he did such a wonderful job. Then the person who's crossing the desert, and as he's crossing the desert, they're worried about bandits or whatever happened when they crossed the desert in those days. Who's he going to thank? The security team and the, the guys who took them through the desert. So all of those times, specifically, you're focused on the person who helped you. Even if it is miraculous in nature, you're focused on the, the person, but you're forgetting that behind every person is God. So the reason we have to give a todah is to remember that it was Hashem who helped us. So one, one of the strange things is, is, is as we go through, we were looking and says, and the thing we were discussing was, are all miracles hidden? Or are miracles revealed? Probably the biggest miracle that we have is a Jewish people, and we read about it in, in the Seder on Pesach, we say whatever miracles we had in Egypt, we had X amount times more at the crossing of the sea. 
it was 50 times more, 10 times more, 5 times, whatever it was, right? We go through, there were 50 miracles in Egypt and 250 miracles at the sea. Crossing the sea is a huge miracle. But even crossing the sea, what happened in the morning before the sea split? What happened all day before the sea split? The Torah says, the wind blew and blew and blew. So that, I could say, it wasn't a miracle. It was nature. Crazy wind caused the sea to split, and therefore we were able to cross. It seems to be that, that almost in every case, there's plausible deniability in a miracle. Meaning God could say, it wasn't me. Now, going from there, the first, the very beginning of this week's parasha, it has a commandment that a person has to, it says, and the fire on the altar shall burn, it shall not go out. The Kohen has to kindle the wood upon it every morning, and the fire has to be a continuous fire, burning upon the altar again, it should not go out. So the Gemaran Yoma writes, although the fire descended from heaven, this is a miraculous fire that came from heaven, it's a mitzvah to add humanly produced fire to it as well. Why? If the fire is coming from heaven, why does man have to do anything? Wouldn't it be much cooler for everyone to come to the Ben HaMikdash and say, Look, you see the fire? This is only fire from heaven. We don't do anything. Why is it necessary for them? And then really, let's go back also. I didn't answer the question. Sorry, I didn't answer the question. We can relate it here. Why is it important that this mitzvah of the, of the, of the four people who have to think are, is a mitzvah within the, the, the part that's talking only to the Kohanim. So the whole idea, sorry, let's go back there and then I'll come back here. The whole idea there is those things have hidden miracles, things people will take for granted. It says that the Kohan coming every day to the Bet HaMikdash, he's experiencing miracles every single day. What happens to a person who's experiencing miracles every single day? He starts to take the miracles for granted. There's a Yiddish expression that says that, that nobody picks up the papers in the printing press. Meaning you could have a Jewish printing press and there could be Hebrew papers on the floor and they're stepping on them and no one's stopping to pick them up. It says, why are they not stopping to pick them up? Because if they stopped every time a paper fell on the floor, they wouldn't have a business to run. But if any of us saw a Hebrew paper sitting on the floor, what do we do? We run, grab it, usually we kiss it, we put it somewhere. It says that a person takes things for granted. So it says the Kohen specifically begins to take things for granted and therefore the Kohen has to be reminded through these, through these offerings that he shouldn't take anything for granted. So sorry, where was Finchin going out for childbirth in this? Is this a law now, or this is just an opinion? Uh, benching Gomel for childbirth? Yeah. No, I think a woman who's giving birth is considered someone who, who is in bed for three days. She's the same as a chola. That's, a, that's the comparison. Yeah, it's not specific that... It's not, one, it's not a fifth thing, and a woman who gave birth, but a woman who was in bed for... X amount of time. So a woman who's given birth is in, considered in bed for the X amount of time and is obligated with, uh, with saying Gomel. Now the question is just on a halacha. So a halacha question. They... Halacha question. So what does a woman do? So in, in my synagogue, because I had a lady who bothered my rabbi a lot, uh, so he said okay years ago and that's how I just left it since. When a lady wants to say Gomel, we, at the end of one of the parts of the Torah, 
We stop for a second, and she he says Gomel from the lady section, and everyone says, you know, Amen. We answer her the way he's supposed to answer. The other way to do it is someone else can say on behalf of someone else. So, for example, I can go up to the Torah, and I could say Shegamal Ishti Koltuv, who did good for my wife. So say, I came back off a plane, and my wife is on the plane with me. So she has to say Gomel. The problem is flying, you know, it's a big argument. Should flying still be Gomel? So I literally, uh, this, this winter, I said Gomel twice every week, which a little crazy. Imagine if it was in Bet HaMikdash. I'd be bringing a cow twice a week. I mean, so. I'm just curious about the parameters, you know, because in our synagogue, they weren't doing it for many years, and then all of a sudden, now Rabbi Lukstein makes it a part of any breast. The woman comes up, and after the breast, she benches Gomel. Ah. But, you know. And what does he do for a girl? Well, he, yeah, I mean, I remember he approached me with the Simcha Bat. And. I didn't because I really did feel like I gave birth. I got up the next day, you know, thank uh-huh. God. So to do it to me would have felt like I had a threatening situation. But you did. God forbid. So that, but really, what so, the, what what the, what what the Arizal is saying in the beginning is absolutely, you, absolutely. No what, so I'm saying, is so it look, I'm getting off of a plane. Right. It's to me. I'm on the JetBlue back and forth, or the other guys now, there's no more JetBlue. Everyone else is taking the private plane back right. and forth. They pay $12,000 a year, and they fly back on the private plane back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Okay, so do they feel they're saying go mail? They're not it's even going through airport security. Right. But okay. it's personal for you, in other words. It's not, no, no, I don't think, for me, if I, for me do, I think, do I think that I, do I really believe that I was saved when I got off the plane? Absolutely not, I, but I'm required to say go mail. So, so to me, it seems a little ridiculous, right? But what, what my brother basically is saying back to me, mm-hmm. and is saying that no, you think it is, but at the moment that you were in that situation, you the sword of Damocles was hanging over your head. That's the easiest way to say it. Right. You were put in a position called called chova. Okay, so you were susceptible at that moment. Forget about that; nothing happened, but I was susceptible to something happening. So you could say it for crossing the street every day. Yeah. I mean, what the question is... But that's why, the, that's, why, that's why the rabbis gave us the parameters. So okay. it's... When you cross the sea or a three-hour flight... Right, so crossing the sea, it's actually 72 minute, a 72-minute flight. So crossing the sea, okay. the, the flight of a certain distance, crossing a desert, this illness, and the coming out of prison. So any of those. Okay. Now, the problem is some people will say, I was, in a, I was almost in a car accident, so I need to say Gomel. Do they say Gomel? No. Is it a battle? Yes. Because they say, no, I have to say Gomel. I was saved. Okay, but that's not when you say Gomel. What you should do is you should make breakfast on Sunday morning in the synagogue (laughs) and tell everyone I'm making breakfast because I feel I should bring a a todah, but I'm not obligated to say the blessing. And this is why I feel I should. And that's unbelievable because that's that's aspect of pishtumei nisa of of uh, of, uh, of uh, publicizing the miracle. And and it's important to publicize the miracle so that people should hear. So what 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 happens a lot of times is 
if we hear about something that happened to someone else, then we start to appreciate things in our own life. Does it last? Generally doesn't last, but it, it, it could have some impact. So that's one of the reasons we do, we do, we do this todah is so that a person should have the meal. And so basically, if you think about it, forget the bracha today, go back to the old days. I make the meal with all of these people coming to the meal. We're sitting together at the meal, and I'm telling the people how I was saved. And wow, you were saved. So, you know, I was in jail, and I got out of jail, or I was this, and I got out. And other people see, oh, there's a miracle in there. Even though it's a hidden miracle, you should appreciate what hidden miracles are there in my own life that I, that I don't see. So, so going so said so now going to this so the, the question really is, if Hashem is bringing the wood, I mean bringing the fire, why is it necessary for the Kohen to bring the fire? And basically, what the Gemara is telling us is that is that and, and this is this is really from Sefer Hachinuch. It says, when God decides to perform, this is the words of Sefer Hachinuch. So Sefer Hachinuch goes through each mitzvah in the Torah and explains each of the commandments and why we do them. From his perspective. So he says, why is it necessary to put the wood on the fire? He says, he says that, uh, he says, when God decides to perform a tremendous miracle, he does his best to disguise it and make it appear as if it is a regular occurrence. He actually brings the example of the splitting of the sea. He says, we find that in the splitting of the sea, the verse wrote that a strong wind blew in order to give an appearance of a natural phenomenon. This is also the reason why God commanded the Kohanim to light the fire on the altar, even though it descended from heaven, in order to disguise the miracle in the cloak of the mundane. The question then is, why is it necessary to hide miracles? Why don't we want to have an open miracle? So he says, this, so, so I brought this from Rabbi Rav Kook. So Rav Kook says that the intervention in nature was always limited as much as possible. He says, why? why? Why would Hashem want to minimize miracles? He says, in order that we should not belittle the importance of personal effort and initiative. He says, if life was only miracles, we would sit back. It is preferable that we do not rely on divine, divine intervention, and, but say perhaps a miracle will occur. Ultimately, both miracles and natural events are the work of God. Natural events, he says, he says, natural events the work of, but they are achieved through our skill, initiative, and effort. When we are active, we spiritually, we spiritually advance ourselves by virtue of our actions. Our merits are the result of the positive ethical deeds that we have performed. We should strive for an active life of giving, not a passive one of receiving. So therefore, it's important to hide the fact of miracles so that man doesn't sit back and rely on miracles. So if you look at the world, the world that we live in, the world that we operate under, it's all really a world of miracles, but miracles that we don't, we don't see. So he says, he says even, even he writes, and then commenting on what Rav Cook would have written, this was Rabbi Cardoza, he says that a person should know that, that when you look at the state of Israel, it's an obvious miracle. Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, someone who wrote this week, oh, Rabbi Biton, the rabbi in Brooklyn, he wrote about uh, the, the scientist who just died. Um, yeah, so he wrote something interesting. He said, you know, why was he such a, in the last years of his life, why was he such a rabid anti-Semite? Really, really, really terrible. Yeah, he was uh, very involved in BDS. He was the first scientist that pushed BDS. He refused to come to Israel. And the silly thing is that he was only able to communicate because 
of a uh, chip that Intel's Israeli team <laughs> developed. And he says, you have to boycott anything from Israel. Okay, take, take the chip. He says, why? He says, earlier in his life, he, he wrote that he believed in God. Later in his life, he wrote that he didn't believe in God. There was no God. He said he believed that anyone who says there's no God has to also put down the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people exist in a miraculous way. And if there's no God, there's no Jewish people. So he related that, his, his, his so to say, his hatred for Israel to his, his disbelief that there could be a God and therefore the Jews shouldn't exist. I thought it was interesting how he put it to try to understand somebody. He said, you know, he read all of his books, he appreciated so much of what he wrote, but he saw a change in his life as he, as he aged. But, I mean, a miraculous guy, they said he wouldn't live two years and he lived another, uh, you know, 50 years or so. Oh, so now, now I came to this whole point. This is where, where we get to the real, uh, I guess, meat. And this is where I really get lost. So, there's two ways of looking at miracles. Ramban and Rambam. Okay, and it's a somewhat confusing. Ramban is Nachmanides. He lives after Rambam, who's Maimonides. Now, Ramban, so just this is I have. Ramban places great emphasis on miracles which come in two types. The first are public revealed miracles, such as those associated with the Exodus. It says, whenever we have a miracle in the Exodus, Hashem says, you should see my ototai, in order that you should remember, believe, etc., etc. So these miracles are an explicit breach of nature. Everything that happened in Egypt is an out-of-the-world miracle. And he says that we need these miracles because we have to see that God is really involved in the world and God is in control of the world. He says there's another more subtle way that God interacts with the world, and these are hidden miracles. And he refers to these hidden miracles as, he says, these are hashkachat prati, meaning God interferes in a way, he interferes in a certain way for us to, you know, for, for looking out for us, so to say, or guiding our life. Rambam is a whole different, different level. Now, to understand the Ramban, I, I'll tell you a true story. There's a rabbi, his name, was, uh, his name is, his last name is Kadosh. He was a rabbi in Brooklyn. He moved to Montreal. He became the, the Rosh Yeshiva of one of the schools, and he also, uh, he also was the rabbi of uh, the synagogue there. He was a teacher in Lakewood for many years, and he had a number of students in Lakewood. So if there was a wedding of one of his students that he had a good relationship with, he would come down from Montreal for the wedding. So he'd come down for a wedding, and at the end of the wedding, his intention was to leave the wedding by 11 o'clock or so and drive straight up from Lakewood, up the thruway to Montreal. Six hours, whatever it is. Seven hours, something like that. <laughs> anyway, so 11, 12 o'clock at night. Hours. So he tells a story, you know. He said he was tired from the wedding and he started to drive. It was probably 2, 3 o'clock in the morning and, you know, you start to fall asleep. Uh, if you ever drove long distances, you get the... So you start to do the tricks, he says. You know, so the first question any woman's going to say, why don't you just pull over and go to a hotel? But, you know, guys are you know, tough, right? So <laughs> he says he tried all the tricks. He opened the window. He turned up the radio. He poured water on his face. He drank. And he was doing okay. He says around 4 o'clock, he said, you know, I'm going to put a tape in and listen to a Torah tape. And he listens to the tape. And he's listening to the tape. And as he's listening, he's falling asleep again. So he, took, he says he does the rubber band trick. 
I never heard this one before, but he told me he does a rub. Put a rubber band on his hand, and his hand is on the wheel, and he, psh, boom, till, uh, you know, the pain will wake him up. So he did the rubber band trick a couple of times, and then the rubber band flew off, and he couldn't find the rubber band. So he's listening to the class, he's trying to focus on the class, and he's, psh, and then he's lifting head up, and boom. And now already he's in Nowheresville, it's pitch black, dark, and the mountains, you're driving through the mountains up there, upstate. He says, at one point he fell asleep. And he was probably heading straight into a mountain. And all of a sudden, he heard a truck horn blast loud. He jumped. He saw this mountain in front of his face. He quickly turned the wheel. And then he was driving. And now he's looking, where's the truck? Because the truck saw I was going to die and he saved my life. Was he behind me? Did he pass me? Did he come the other way? There's no lights anywhere. <laughs> no truck behind him, no truck in front of him. Now he's already, he says, like, I, 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 I don't know what's going on. He pulls over now, because now he's worried now. Where did the truck come from? <clears throat> he's sitting there thinking for a minute, and he decides to rewind the tape. He rewinds the tape two minutes, and on the tape, you hear a truck horn blasting. He pulls out the tape. This tape was given, the class was given in Brooklyn, 10 years before, in a synagogue on Ocean Parkway. Where's a truck horn? So he says, so, so one of the things he says, so the question now is, 10 years before, a guy's giving a class, a truck that's not supposed to be on Ocean Parkway, is on Ocean Parkway, blasts its horn, so that it gets recorded, so that 10 years later, when he's driving on the highway, the horn blasts and saves his life. Hidden miracle, coincidence, what are you going to call it? The problem to say coincidence, too many coincidence, but the problem to say miracle, it's to say, that's the Ramban, Hashkacha Prati. That's the Ramban saying hidden miracle. Now let's do the Rambam, just have a little bit. Let's do the Rambam. So, for, the, for me, I couldn't understand the Rambam. And that's when I called this rabbi to, to try to go over it with him. He says the truth is he doesn't understand the Rambam either. And most of the rabbis don't understand the Rambam because the Rambam really is explaining, he's not, he's not giving his own. He's giving, he's giving it according to, uh, um, not Socrates, Aristotle. He's basically taking Aristo, Arist, Aristotelian, right? <coughs> and explaining it. So I was trying to come up with how to understand it. Right before you came into the office today, I was actually in the other trying to go over it. No, no, no. I was asking, we were talking about it inside. So he says, so I, I, I came up with something that I think this really explains it a little. The, 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 in Pirkei Avot, in the Mishnah, and also in the Gemara, it tells us that there were ten things that Hashem created at twilight on the sixth day of creation. Meaning right before creation was completed... These six things, were, these ten things were created. What are they? The mouth of the earth that swallowed Korach. The mouth of the well that provided water for the Jews in the, in the desert. The mouth of the donkey, which spoke to Bil'am. The rainbow, the man, Moses' staff, the shamir, which was the worm that was able to the cut temple. the stones in order to put the temple together without... You're not allowed to uh, use a metal tool to build. So you had this shamir, the special 
a worm that cut the stones, writing, the inscription, and the two luchot, the two tablets. Say some say also, the destructive spirits, the place Moshe was buried, the ram that Avraham was given for the akedah, and some say tongues. Say tongues, tongues. So if you're a blacksmith, you're holding your metal in the you're holding your metal piece in the fire with metal tongues. So so the question really is what why is it necessary, first of all, for all of these things to be created? So to understand what Rambam is saying, Rambam is saying when Hashem created the world and he created nature. He built into creation at the original time of creation everything necessary. So for example, when the sea split, when the people were leaving Egypt, and the moment the sea split was built into this big computer to happen exactly at that point in time, regardless of the Israelites or the Egyptians. When the sea came to close, it was built to happen exactly at that moment. All of this was programmed. And I guess really we could, you know, if we, we start to just study somewhat artificial intelligence of what computers are doing, we could imagine, you know, they wrote, the, God wrote a script of the world. That script included every single person in the world. <clears throat> and every miracle that would ever happen was built into creation. And there are no new miracles. And there are no created miracles. So the, the question really then was, why tongues? <laughs> of all the things on the list, why tongues? Okay, the mouth of the earth that swallows Bil'am. So it says, that was always there. Moses just had to pray that it would open at that point. But according to Rambam, it was always going to open at that point, regardless of anything. According to Ramban, it may have been built in, but Moses' prayer was necessary and God had to intercede and allow it. So Rambam in many ways is saying that God created the world and the world runs and he's programmed everything into existence. But in some ways, the only way I can understand is Rambam's God is a step back a little from the world. While Ramban's God is a God that I could talk to and is involved with me. Okay, that's, I think, the biggest difference. <clears throat> I heard that the Rambam Please. described miracle as everything being natural, but the timing of it is, was the key. That it happened that, you know, so the Red Sea split at that time, so whether that was predetermined or not, but that no miracle is sort of out of mm. the realm of nature. Right, so every miracle is built into nature. nature. It's built right. into the computer program. Right. But, but even what he's saying really, when I, when I broke it down and he's really... It you're seems that it's even the time is also part of it because he's specific. Rambam is specific that the time is actually part of it. Okay. But the problem, the problem I have in where Rambam is writing this, he's writing this in Morenu Bukhim. So the question is that's guide to guide to the perplexed. The question that really all rabbis have, that I've ever spoken to this about have is: Was Morenu Bukhim written for us, or was it written for the rest of the world? Was it written in a, in a time where people were, were influenced by Aristotle and they were trying to understand, was he writing it for the Jewish people or writing it for not the Jewish people? To me, and, and that's why I really remember, what, the first book that was burned was Moreno Bukhim. 
they burned his books. And many rabbis who study Rambam, if you look in the Syrian rabbis who study Rambam, they, they push, push off Moreh Nebuchim, they don't touch it. With a, with a you know, 10-foot pole, they don't touch it. But one of the things is this whole idea of the tongues. Why the tongues? And he, his, the explanation of the tongues is very interesting because tongues are made out of metal. metal. And how would you make tongues if you didn't have tongues? Because how would you put something in the metal if you didn't have something to put the metal? So he says, therefore, God created whatever. This miracle is, is in, in the original. So God created so that man could do. Everything was created so that man could do. So the world in Rambam's way, it seems, seems is that Hashem wants the world where the, the man could occupy the world and do what man needs to do and not rely on a world of miracles in any way, in any way or form. That everything is up to me. I have to do everything that I could possibly do in this world. So now go further. Now the question is, do miracles matter? Do miracles matter? So the biggest question we have with regard if miracles matter or not is this. You know, I've heard many people tell me that, you know, I don't believe in God. And the reason I don't believe in God is because I don't see. But if God would do a miracle for me, like he did for the people when they left Egypt, I would believe in God. So the question we have is the people who experienced the Exodus, went through the ten plagues, crossed the sea, saw man fall from the heaven, drank water from a rock, heard God on top of the mountain speak to them where they could see whatever that means, and then saw Moses go up the mountain 40 days later worship a calf. Okay, so that's really why I say worshiping the calf was a thousand percent not Avodah wasn't idolatry. We also see because Yerovam ben Nevat, he sets up two calves, and Yerovam ben Nevat was a scholar, and I don't think he would have set up two calves later on if it was Avodah He was using it as a focus of prayer, like we discussed, that it was representative of the angels, representative of this, this aspect of deen. But the reality is that they sinned in some way after they saw all these miracles. So you would think that someone who sees a miracle, they're going to, you know, oh, if God would do the miracle, I would always be good my whole life. One of the things that made me realize that it's not, not possible, that people don't change, is the story of Eliyahu Anabi, Elijah the prophet. So during the time of Elijah, there was a king, Ahav, and his wife was Isabel, Jezebel. And they basically went after killing all of the prophets. And they had an arch enemy, and their arch enemy was Elijah, Eliyahu. And Isabel was basically was the harlot of Baal. Baal was the god that they worshipped. And Baal, the, the, what, what the difference of Baal was, Baal was a, was a worship that basically was a hedonistic worship. So very appealing to people. You could do anything you want, and everything's kosher, and everything's good, and have a good time. The strange thing about the Jewish people at that time, even the king, was that they worshipped Baal and they worshipped God. And that was what was so upsetting to God. They'd wake up in the morning, they'd go to shul, they'd put on their tefillin, and after shul they'd go to the Baal club. Well, at night they'd go to the Baal club and do whatever they did in Studio 54, and then the next uh, morning they were back. So they, they had both worlds. We see it how. When Eliyahu Navi has to run away and hide in a cave, he has no food. 
And the rabbis say there was a miracle. The ravens, who really are a negative bird, who wouldn't do, brought him food. And the question is, where did they bring him food from? They brought him food from the table of the king Achav. So the king and the queen, who are the, the worst of the worst, and who are behind all of this idolatry, still have a completely 100% kosher kitchen with the mashkiach and everything done right. Now, we have a story in, in, uh, in Malachim that, that uh, the Eliyahu challenges the priests of Baal. He challenges them. He challenges them to a showdown. You're going to worship your God, and I'm going to worship mine. And they're going to bring an animal sacrifice, he's going to bring an animal sacrifice. And he says, whichever one that heaven's going to send down a fire is the one that's right. So the Baal worshippers are trying to do all their tricks, and they're doing everything they can, and the whole day goes by, and nothing happens with their sacrifice. Eliyahu Anavi, on the other hand, drenches his in water and does everything to make it not work. And then he prays to God and it really was a sin what he did because he really was depending on a miracle. He prays to God and God brings a miracle and all the people there say, Hashem Huha Elohim, which is why we say that on Yom Kippur. So they say, Hashem So now you would imagine right after that, what's going to happen? Everyone's going to go and throw away their little Baals at home and go back to God. Meanwhile, Isabel puts out a, uh, a death decree on Elijah. You would think the people are going to protect him. How does she think the people are not going to protect him after this just happened in front of million people. They all saw he's the guy. How is it possible that they're not going to protect him? But she knew the nature of people. That day the people said, Hashem Elohim, Hashem Elohim. They all saw an open miracle that no one could deny. The next morning they woke up and they forgot about it. So on the one hand, it's human nature. We think that if we saw a miracle, we're going to change. But the fact is, we could see miracles and we don't change. In reality, it helps on the other side as well because we see tragedy. You know, you go, God forbid, to a funeral of a, of a young person and everyone says, I'm going to appreciate life and I'm going to do this and I'm going to appreciate my kids and two days later we're back to whatever we were doing. But on the other hand, we lose somebody and God gives us the ability to forget that side as well. So, so the answer really isn't in miracles, it seems. The answer is not in miracles. The answer really, I think, is in appreciating that all of life is a miracle. And everything that happens within life is a miracle. Whether we look at it like Ramban, which I find a little difficult, or we look at it like Ramban, which really is telling us that Hashem is looking out for us. Now, I think the, the, it's, it's very simplistic when we think in a way that, that, that you know, one of the ways that I, I, I try to have a relationship with God is a relationship with a child to a father. So I imagine sometimes my father, and I'm talking to God like I would talk to my father. I think that's simplistic. I think it's somewhat childish. But the truth is, sometimes it works. If you're praying the Amidah, and you're trying to talk to God directly, it works to be able to use your imagination that He's hearing you and have a conversation with Him and have special times. I think it's very sincere. But I think, but I think the reality is it's a much higher level than that, where we're not even you know, close. 
But I think that it's, it's in Ramban's way. It's a way of having a relationship with Hashem and understanding Hashkacha Prati, meaning Hashem's looking out for me and things are going to happen. And I have to see in my life how things happen. I've spoken to one, one time I did a project where we, we worked with a school and we went and interviewed uh, dozens and dozens of su- successful business people. And we asked all of them, was it your education? Was it this? Was it that? What made you successful? And pretty much everyone, once you got through a bunch of questions, admitted that there was some point in their life that they had this luck. Something happened, and that's what did it. And that luck is really God. That coincidence is God. What? Exactly. So the, 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 the luck is... So a person's income is coming from... Whatever person earns is coming from God. So he says, so, so he says that's really what, what I think Ramban is saying, that the, the miracles are really there in every day in our life. There's the open miracles that we don't have anymore. We really don't have them anymore. We don't see them, we don't recognize them. But there's closed miracles that Hashem puts into nature. Now, one of the reasons why we don't have open miracles and why all open miracles have, a plausible, have this plausible deni- deniability is because if you had open miracles with no plausible deniability, then a person would lose free choice. And the whole thing of living is that we have free choice. Whatever's pulling us on the one side, we have pulling the other side. So, so that's, why, that's why someone who's at a higher level is pulled, is pulled away. He's pulled away also, like we said last week, because he has more that the dark side wants to take. But keeping it the simplest way, we, we have to remember that everything in life has miracles. We have to look for the miracles in life and, and appreciate them. We have to look really that this, those four things, those four things that Hashem saves for, that really represents all of life. And sometimes we come to not recognize miracles. What Le'ah is appreciating is the miracle of childbirth. And we sometimes don't recognize the miracle of childbirth. We don't recognize the miracle today of the, of the, of the quadruple bypass. A miracle that the guy survived. My mother told me, my mother was in work for, uh, for uh, the, uh, the army, army intelligence during World War II which was, I guess, somewhat like a cross between the FBI and the CIA. So the head of Army Intelligence was, was her, uh, her boss was the head of Army Intelligence. At the time, I guess World War II was when they came out with penicillin, around then. This guy gave himself a penicillin shot once a week. Because <laughs> it was a miracle of penicillin, and he wanted to make sure that nothing would happen to him. My, my mother still laughs about it, that every week he had them come in and give him his penicillin injection to make sure he would be fine. I mean, you would say from a doctor's point, you crazy. But, but really, the miracle of penicillin, and my mother tells you, you know, in those days, you can't imagine what was before penicillin and after penicillin. And I say, whoa. So really we have to look at life and appreciate really all of the miracles in life. Coming to Pesach, Pesach is really to remind us there were open miracles. And there are open miracles and we have to look not for the open miracles, we have to look for the closed miracles. We have to remember the open miracles, tell them to our kids, but really remind our kids that they have to appreciate really every day in life all the, closed, all the hidden miracles that are really right. miracles. So did the Rambam believe in Hashkafa Pratit? I don't think so. Right? No. So that was a big difference. That's a big difference. The Rambam, so is, the Rambam is not. Right. You're right. It's not Hashkafa. Everything's built in. It's, like, it's almost like Rambam's vision, what I'm understanding, and it's, I tell you, it's very hard for me to understand it because it's so foreign to the way that we were raised. It's foreign to the way we're raised because we're raised believing in Ashkara Pratit. Right. But even the guys who are those, we, we call the white hat, white hat, will tell you there's not. Even them, the Rambam is is hard to understand because he's so, he distances God so much right. from us 
that it's hard to understand the relationship between man and God from, from Moreh Nebuchim. But then when you look at his laws, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to jive. So that's okay. where I have a problem. For public yeah. Thanks all for that's coming. Thank you. Perfect time.